when you're collaborating and you're holding the space for the, for their preferences, like they, and they know that you respect them and, and what they have to say and what they want for their life. Then when you offer perspectives and, and say, Hey, I really think this would be a value add for you. They are honestly open to it. You're listening to The Parenting Junkie Show, the place to go to love parenting and to parent from love. I'm your host, Avital. Hey, hey, everyone. Today, I am so excited to introduce a very special guest. Her name is Rachel Rainbolt, and she is a coach, writer, podcaster, and advocate of all things gentle parenting, natural homeschooling, and simple living. She is the founder of sageparenting.com and a soul sister, although we've only met relatively recently. My conversations with Rachel could go on forever and ever. Um, And it's just such a great joy to connect with like-minded parents. And I think she's definitely the type of person I would go to for parenting advice over and over again. Um, I had the great pleasure of being a guest on Rachel's podcast, Sage Parenting, all about peaceful partnering and my parent in love uh, approach and process. And today, I am so grateful to her for returning the favor and coming on on our podcast, where we'll talk about natural homeschooling, simple living, and all things gentle parenting. You know, it's such a great joy to connect, but I think it's also really enriching to listen in on conversations like this. And especially as we are in the hustle and bustle of the holiday season, I'd love to just offer this up as an an example of a gentle conversation between two mamas who both also have experienced losing their ish, being overwhelmed and stressed, having, uh, you know, frustration and difficulties and challenges within our family and within our extended family. Um, And just extend that out to you guys, reach out a loving hand and open arms and a warm embrace because we're all in in this together. So without further ado, Let me wait. Welcome, Rachel. Hello, Rachel Rainbow. Thank you so much for being here, Rachel. Thanks for having me. It was so fun when you came on my Sage Family podcast, and now we get to talk some more. So I'm super excited. I know. I feel like Rachel's my new friend, totally buddy from the internet hood. So, um, <laughs> Rachel, for those of uh, for those listening who may not know about your wonderful work and just you yourself and your family, tell us about yourself a little bit. Give us uh, give us some background. Sure. Well, I am a homeschooling mama to three kiddos who are now 14, 11, and 7. Um, And then I am the coach, writer, podcaster behind Sage Parenting. Most people get connected with me through Instagram. I'm pretty active on there. And I talk about all things gentle parenting, simple living, and natural homeschooling. So I have four books, and I do a lot of online coaching, and I have some classes, and those things are my passions, and that's what I am excited about. Amazing. Well, I'm excited about all the things that you're excited about, so it's like <laughs> 100 out of 100. Um, <laughs> so that's brilliant. So tell us, let's start with gentle parenting. That was the first thing that you said. So can you just give us, if, if someone's completely new to this concept, what are the top-level things that you, uh, that you help parents with and that you think, you know, the message that you need to spread to the world around gentle parenting? Yeah, I think most of the time when parents come to me and they're struggling, it's because their their expectations and their attempted solutions are really what's causing the problem. Um, so my philosophy focuses on like honoring the natural child and finding, I try and describe it like a Venn diagram where we can honor everyone's needs. So trying to address the unmet needs of everyone, including you. Um, And like a Venn diagram, there are points where they overwhelm. And those are really the sweet spots that we can lean into and flesh out. And when everyone's needs are met and our expectations are aligned with like what the natural child actually is, um, then families really thrive. Mm. So, so give us an example, like what's, what's a scenario that someone's, um, 
you know, just not overlapping and how can they then overlap with their kids? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So for example, I was on a hike um, the other day with my seven-year-old who is very physical and very gross motor and that's his language and that's his natural way of being. And so while a lot of people might say stop running or don't run or be repeating it over and over and over again, um, what I heard myself repeating was be mindful of the, of the edge. You know, there was like a mountain on one side, sort of a cliff on the other. Um, so what I heard myself saying a couple times was be mindful of the ledge. And then I sort of had to pause and say, okay, wait a second. What is his need right now in this moment? His need is to run. Okay, so my solution has to incorporate that. Then what is my concern in this moment? And how can I get more specific about it? So then we would collaborate, which is a big part of my philosophy and how I work with families. So I just went to him and said, I'm feeling really nervous whenever you get close to this edge while you're running. Do you have any ideas about how you can still run and we can make sure that you're safe and you won't fall off this ledge? And he said, well, how about I run like with my hand on the edge and I can touch the rocks on the mountainside? I'm like, great, perfect. Sometimes it'll be like, he wants me to run with him and I'll take the outer position or, you know, we might try something and then realize we need to adjust. Maybe we didn't quite hit on the need um, and we make adjustments, but that's the general approach. And it's really, really efficient and it works really, really well in addition to being like morally and ethically good. Like it feels really great to treat children like actual human beings deserving of respect and honoring our own needs and feelings in the process. A hundred percent. I so agree with you. Um, do you feel like this is something that you're able to do in a lot more effective way? And I'm asking this totally selfishly for my, <laughs> my own sanity, but do you feel like you're able to do that a lot more effectively because your kids are bigger now because your youngest is seven? Or do you feel like it was just, just as, just as accessible when they were, you know, two and five and feels like it was absolutely just as accessible when they were two and five. I think that since I've been doing it since they were two and five, like it, it's their like template for, and you know, it's their expectation about like what relationships feel like and what they look like and, and how we hold space for everyone's needs and how we negotiate that through collaboration. And I think that when they're younger, it just looks a little bit different. Like it's still, you know, if I have a two-year-old who's running down the edge, I wouldn't sit there and have a five minute long conversation with them with so many words, but it would be like, whoa, danger, you know, and we would look over the cliff edge and then I would say, you want mommy to run too? And I would hold, maybe hold their hand if they liked that, or we would play follow the leader. We would run together, or I would ask them if they want to ride on my shoulders. So it's, you know, a little bit more onus on me for coming up with the ideas, perhaps when they're say two, um, but it's still the, coming from the same foundation of trying to honor their unmet needs and acknowledge the feelings and concerns that I'm having and finding the point where those overlap and, um, you know, just really keeping my expectations aligned with what this unique human with their unique way of being and existing in the world you know, what they need to thrive and how they are and who they are. Um, because even as a parent with more than one kid, as I'm sure you can relate to, sometimes we just want to sort of apply this template of like, well, you should be able to do this. Or, well, you know, my other kid, I mean, my first three kids did this, so this is what you should be able to do. But that's not the case. Every person is so unique and our expectations can trip us up so much. So even when they're young, just recognizing that, like, I don't really care so much what the developmental charts say or what Susie parenting expert says online. <laughs> it's more like, hey, what, what has this child shown me that they need? Um, and then finding ways to honor that that still allow us to move through the world safely. Yeah, no, 100%. And I would add to that that I 100% agree that it's something that is applicable for babies, for toddlers. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it is, uh, as you're saying, I think sometimes when you have very little kids, 
hearing those conversations around gentle parenting, like, hey, can we come up with solutions can feel frustrating because that's not something that's accessible when you have such little <laughs> kids. And I sometimes have people say to me like, but I ask them and then they just don't answer and then they just scream and then they just, and so I, I just, I think it's important what you're saying, the differentiation is, it, you come from that same energy of, hey, buddy, this is an issue, let's solve this together, what, what can we do? But you're not really waiting for that cooperation of back and forth negotiation and too many words and too many explanations. At that point, you kind of are like, okay, here's what we need to do. Let me help you do it. Um, so uh, Rachel, do you ever just want to tear your hair out as a parent? <laughs> like, is it ever really hard because your voice is super soothing and I love the energy and everything and you teach this stuff. But I know this is something that people want to know from me. Do you have really low points? Do you have things that you feel ashamed of or that were like breaking points? Or do you ever just not, do you ever just lose it? I definitely get frustrated for sure. I mean, everybody does. And I, I, I wasn't, I will say, which I was just saying to my therapist the other day, because like, I mean, right, even... (laughs) Well, I was just saying like, I was definitely not born this way. Like it was hard earned. Um, I, when I start to feel like my needs are not being met in a certain situation, I try and conceptualize at that and, and think about what is my unmet need in this moment um, and how can I meet it as opposed, you know, it's been a lot of rewriting those scripts of like, my kids are making me crazy. Well, no, I am responsible for my own internal state and emotional world. And, you know, just sort of doing the work of when I hear those thoughts writing over them. And so for me, a lot of times, if I start to lose my cool, I, it looks like narration. Like I will narrate the, the process that I'm going through in my head. And I will, you know, I'm trying to role model for my kids. Like, because we all lose our minds sometimes and get crazy. And so I try and harness those moments as like learning opportunities where I can role model. What can you do when you're feeling crazy? And how can you, you know, if stuff slips out that you don't mean to, how do you repair that harm? Like, how do you apologize and make it right? And how do you learn from it? And, oh man, next time that happens, I'm going to try to do this instead. And so I find that when they were really younger and now in my really hard moments, I do more narrating than I would say most people probably do because I'm trying to work all this stuff and do all this work. And when I can do it out loud for my kids to witness, I feel like that makes it a value add. Yeah. Oh, I 100% know exactly what you're talking about. Can you give us an example of a snippet of narration of what it might sound like? Okay, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kidding. Just bring, bring it down. It's super practical. <laughs> so like I walked out of the bedroom this afternoon after doing a bunch of like homeschooling kind of stuff in the bedroom with my youngest and the kitchen was like a disaster. We just flew back into town. We got in really late. We were gone for a couple of weeks and we had cleaned the kitchen before we left. And I swear I've only spent like five minutes in the kitchen since we got back and I walked out and somehow it was a disaster. And so like, you know, this like tiger wanted to jump out and freak out and start yelling at everybody about the mess that was everywhere that I had nothing to do with, but just instead like taking a really deep breath and talking through like, this mess is super overwhelming to me right now. I don't know how this happened. I don't know when this happened. I know that I cleaned this kitchen before we left. So before I say anything or do anything, I need to like let that feeling move through me, like acknowledge it, overwhelmed. Like I feel overwhelmed right now. I'm just going to breathe through it and then you guys can help me and we can work through this together and we can move through it. And then, okay, so, (laughs) you know, Bay, you're sitting at the table and I'm noticing there's all this stuff around you. Would you be willing to work on the stuff on the table? And then I know you guys wanted me to cook some food. So in order to do that, like this space has to be cleared off. Like can one of you guys help with this space? And so just talking, like talking myself down from the ledge, um, because if that limbic system, if that limbic part of your brain, you're in that fight, flight, freeze has taken over, you can't move into collaboration. So like first you kind of have to parent that inner child or your warrior, I like to call it. You have to, you have to calm your warrior down and let them know that they're not necessary in this moment so that you can actually access like the thinking that prefrontal cortex part of your brain. I love that idea so much. I can so imagine like my warrior self like coming out to protect me. It's like, oh no, by the way, it's okay. Like 
Sit down. I actually don't need a warrior to handle like, dishes on the kitchen island and the table. Yeah. Like that's I, I actually you can you can take a seat. Everybody's safe. Relax, sister. <laughs> yes. oh, brilliant. I love it. I love it. That's that's amazing. All right. So I want to talk about your um your homeschooling. I would just love okay. to hear. Tell me everything. Tell me all the things. What's the approach? How does it work? How do you get time to, to do your work, your entrepreneurship and your, your, your sacred, incredible work in the world? And how do you teach your babies? Well, I call it natural homeschooling. Most people consider us unschoolers. Um, I sometimes say we're unschooly. Um, yeah. Wait, the, you know, the labels that fit kind of feel yeah. different in different seasons and whatnot. Um, but we try to embrace like self-directed education. So... Um, the soft structure that we use is called the bucket system. It's one of the classes that I have, but basically once each season, I sit down with each kid and we talk about what things they want to learn, what things they want to practice, what challenges they're having that they could use some support for, what skills they want to exercise, things like that. And that's how we pick like what class they want to do, what things they want to work on each day, what materials they need. Um, and so I really use the environment and our calendar and whatnot to try and connect them with like the mentors and the space and the time and the resources to learn the things they need to learn through the doorway of the interests that they have. Brilliant. I love it. I feel exactly the same. Did you always homeschool? <laughs> no. So <laughs> the first chapter of my Sage homeschooling book is sort of me walking through that really hard, painful, messy process that we went through when we put my first in traditional public school. We just didn't really know there was another option. And even though like it didn't feel good and then we put her in and realized that all of the concerns that we had that I assumed would just kind of work themselves out because this is what everybody did. No, <laughs> they did not. <laughs> They were all completely valid. And um, so anyways, we just, we learned a lot from that experience. So my oldest was in school from kindergarten to the middle of second grade. And then we pulled her out and we've been homeschooling ever since. Like at first we started with a like school at home yeah. model. And then it's just been like a gradual evolution <laughs> away from that <laughs> to where we are now. <laughs> Yeah, and that's, I feel like that's a very common story for a lot of, you know, unschooly-ish homeschoolers. Totally. Kind of drops more and more of the structure as you go along. Um, I totally, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. That's so interesting. Because well, so, when we hold the space yeah. and we kind of like allow our kids to show us how they learn and how they thrive, we realized like, oh, we actually, I mean, really, we already knew that all along. Like we watched them learn how to walk. We watched them learn how to talk. I mean, we take a walk through the park and we, they're asking all these questions and, you know, their passionate curiosity is like on fire and we talk about all the things and we look stuff up on the phone and we, it creates this web of understanding and each experience adds a layer to it and builds new connections. And then we say like, okay, now sit down and do this worksheet. And there's like, none of that is happening. So really it was just about like, it's sort of leaning into that like intuitive wisdom that millions of years of evolution have, you know, they've brought, up to this, brought us to this point. And when some people ask about this way of learning, I say it's kind of like if you were just dropped on a deserted island like this is how your kids would learn. Like gentle parenting is really how you would end up parenting and natural homeschooling is kind of how your kids would end up learning. You know, they would follow around the, the adults who were doing things they were interested in and they would learn from like watching and doing and being a part of it in the real world. And that's really kind of how we try to, you know, align our educational approach now. Yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. Are there any things that are like, I have to just teach them this? Like you need to just sit down with me and get this done. Is there any? Is there I really any? don't view any subjects in that context, though. Sometimes from an outsider, it might look like that. Like, for mm -hmm. example, my um, 
my 14 year old wants to start this running start program we have here at 16 where you start at the community college and the local school district pays for your first two years and then you graduate at 18 with an associate degree and a high school diploma so in order to be ready for that we sort of sat down together and dialed the clock back and and made a plan to scaffold her up to being feeling confident as she starts that program. I've spoken with other unschooling families and they say like, you can just start it and they'd be perfectly fine. But given her and her natural way of being and her preferences, and I knew that she would, that would make her feel anxious. Like she would want to feel more competent and confident um, gradually as she got closer and closer to that experience. So she has things that she works on each home day that are a part of her bucket, um, like Khan Academy, where she does math. And she just finished like a songwriting class through Brave Writer. She's really passionate about music and songwriting. So that's, again, like a doorway where she can access a lot of the writing mechanics and things like that. Um, so yes and no. Like, no, it's not like me from up high saying, hey, here's this, this timetable, this chart that the school district says you need to know and I'm going to enforce it. It's more like, hey, my seven-year-old wants to be able to look at a menu and order his own food. Like he wants to be able to read. So these are the things, some things, some tools, some materials, some apps, some activities we can do to help move you into that skill. Um, so even though from the outside, it might look like oh, each morning you're sitting there doing this app with your seven-year-old that helps him advance his reading skills. Like that came from him. You know, he, he wanted to learn that. And so we tried a few different things and this is the one he likes the best. And so this is what we're doing. Yeah, I know. It's a really amazing experience. Like my, uh, he's just turning six-year-old, asks me every morning, would I, would I do math with him? <laughs> and he wants to sit down with a textbook and do like three or four <laughs> pages from a textbook. And it's just kind of funny. You know what I mean? Like totally. it's really kind of funny because people always say, oh, but how are you going to get them to do this? Or are going to get them to do that? And I mean, there are things that I sit them down for. Um, but again, I think I, I share that same attitude. Like for example, we have a lot of family in Israel. My husband and I speak Hebrew will likely be living in Israel for much of our lives my kids are going to need to know Hebrew and to read and write in Hebrew. And that's not something yeah. you're just going to pick up when you live in America. Mm -hmm. you're just pick that up. And so we talk about the fact that like, I want them to learn this because it will help them so much with that transition and they're going to need it, etc. cetera. Um, so, so they get that. Do you know what I mean? So then we'll sit down and we'll do it. And it, it's not, it's not a, an enigma of like, why am I doing this irrelevant skill yeah. within a context of something meaningful and towards a goal that makes sense to, to all of us? There's this interesting thing, this thing that happens though in collaboration that when you hold the space for and respect your child's preferences and interests and desires, um, they then do the same for you. So, you know, collaboration isn't just one way, like I do everything my kids want and they do everything they want. And that's that it goes both ways. So like right now my kids are doing Duolingo and they've all decided to do Spanish because I, we want to take a trip to Costa Rica and I speak Spanish and my mom spoke Spanish. And it's something that like, I would love for to be able to share with him. And I've always sort of spoken Spanglish to them <laughs> here and there. Um, but I would love to like boost them up on those skills before we take that trip. And so like I told them, like I would love for you guys to be a little like, like have all the Spanish right at the forefront of your mind as we take this trip. So like, can we add that to your bucket for this season? And the kids were like, yeah, sure. Like yeah. that's fine. So it, you know, when, when you're collaborating and you're holding the space for the, for their preferences, like they, and they know that you respect them and, and what they have to say and what they want for their life. Then when you offer perspectives and, and say, Hey, I really think this would be a value add for you. They are honestly open to it. That has a hundred percent been my experience. And it's, it, it's just really cool to see that because I think, I think kids understand so much when you put it in with a real explanation and in real context. Yeah. Also when you offer as much choice as possible, you know, um, mm -hmm. like, I, you know, and I, I can think of a couple of examples recently, um, you know, that my son didn't, you know, initially when I was like, do you want to do this thing? And he said, no. And then I'll say, you know what? I think you're going to love it. Mm. You know, why don't we give it a try? I will not force you. 
we yeah. will just go and check it out. Are you willing to go and check it out? And he's like, yeah, okay. You know, he's a reasonable yeah. person. He's like, I'll go and check it out. And mm-hmm. then he, he also is so big that he's able to turn around and be like, you know what? You were right. I love it. And he's <laughs> able to own that. And I feel like that's, that's incredible. And then there are other times also that I'll be feeling like I'm pushing, you know, let's say with the math, I'll be pushing because I have this internal pressure mm-hmm. that I want to keep up on that specific thing with the, you know, government or whatever, because yeah. I just feel that lack of confidence in that. Like, I, I don't feel that in almost any other area, but in math, I'm like, I just want to know they're at grade level, you know? <laughs> but then then my child will be like you know dragging his feet and like I don't feel like doing this and it just doesn't feel good and I'm like I didn't Mm -hmm. get homeschooling to force math on my kid so I'll just have an open conversation with him I'll be like well is this not fun for you is this not important to you what's going on like is there a different way that you want us to do this do you see the value in it you know Mm -hmm. and so always talk about I want to be a banker when I grow up or I want to be a Minecraft coder all this stuff and Mm -hmm. all those are all incredible and math is really going to serve you. Like, can we, can we learn this to help you? And I know that it could just be picked up in an unschooling manner, you know, just from life. I know that, but like in, for me to be comfortable, like I need to know there is some structure to it, you know, Mm -hmm. but in collaboration with him, we, we, we've created that. We've created the amount and the time and the format that just flows much, you know, really easily. and, And it's, it's even fun as you're saying, just because it's a, it's a, it's a back and forth of both of our, both of us perspectives being met. Yeah. You know? No, I love that. I think with math too, like I had to do a lot of work in the beginning, like de-schooling around that and really looking at some of the research. And then it helps that my kids are a little bit older. So like I, I have, I've, I've been through it so I can, I feel like I can, tr- well, I mean, Trust, I think, is really a, an essential component in like the natural homeschooling journey. Like you have to trust that is if you teach them how to learn, they're going to be able to learn everything they need. And with math specifically, really, it's like K through five math is all that anybody knows. I mean, yeah, my true. husband and <laughs> <laughs> me at least, I don't know about anybody. But <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I can tell you from like trying to do, like my husband and I both have graduate degrees and from trying to do math beyond fifth grade, like, I don't know. And I took like graduate level statistics because I was deep in research and, and still like, I can't do sixth grade math. And so knowing (laughs) that (laughs) like makes me feel like way better and actually looking at all of the curricula and things. And then looking at the research that shows like when, you know, when you try to teach a first grader, first grade math, like it might be torturous and it might take nine months long. But a 12-year-old learning first grade math, it takes a week, like, and then they learn it. So being able to relax on all of the timelines and really trusting those, those doorways, like my middle kid, Bay, really does love like Minecraft and programming and all that stuff. And he does learn loads of math through that. And in that collaboration, I told my kids, K through five math is all math that I do use on a daily basis and everyone I know uses on a daily basis. So I need for you to feel comfortable giving you guys the level of freedom you want to know that by the time you are ready to get a job and need to be able to manage your finances, you can do like K through five math. Now I'm really flexible about what that looks like and when that looks like and how we do it and all of that. And so they're aware of that. And so then each season, you know, I'm sort of keeping in the back of my head, like I know where each kid is at and what they've done and what's coming. And then as they start to get older, you would think that's when you, I have heard from people like, oh, well, but you know, you can't homeschool for high school. You have to give them all this extra. But once they become teenagers, especially if you've given them freedom, the flip side of the freedom coin is independence. Like my kids are super independent. They know themselves really well. They know what they're interested in. They know what they're passionate about. They don't have any weird hangups about subjects or about learning things. Like they're really bold and brave with that stuff. And so if they want to move in certain directions or advance in certain ways, like they do, they dive deep with them and it really fleshes out all these like gaps, you know, that people are worried about. as they get older. So like I said, with my 14 year old, like she wants to do this running star program. So she looked at like, I'm less confident in this area. I'm totally confident in that area. Like, what can we do to sort of flesh these things out? And I'm not worried at all. She's going to be totally prepared by the time that day comes. That's brilliant. I I always tell the story of my husband who 
you know, thought he was really dumb in school. He really thought he was dumb and he thought he was, he just, he, yeah, that's what he thought. And then there was mm -hmm. one teacher, a math teacher who was really interesting and a really like talented teacher. We've all had that teacher, right? He was just incredible. And he suddenly understood math and he must have been in 11th grade, like at the end of school. And the teacher said something, he said something like, I'm dumb. And the teacher said, no, you're not. You're smart enough to be a doctor. And he was like, oh, what? what did you just say? Like, what do you mean? And he was, the teacher's like, yeah, you could be a doctor if you wanted to be. And that was the only thing that sparked this oh, wow. awareness for him that he could be a doctor. He almost didn't believe him. He like had him yeah. read it several times. And he went and re-studied, you know, math and did all the exams again after high school. And he mm -hmm. is a neuroradiologist today uh, and taught, uh, you know, college level math uh, to, to many private students. And it's just always such a, a great, you know, a reminder for me how once you're motivated and you have that, you know, the goal that you're working towards that's meaningful to you and the person who believes in you and the way of learning that you actually can process the information and you're mature enough, yep. you get it. And up until that point, no amount of school is going to help. You won't get it anyway, right? I mean, oh my gosh, yes. So yeah, in high school, I remember being told because I did like the minimum amount of math that I had to do. And I remember being told like, if you don't take this statistics class, you will never be able to graduate from college. Like this is what the, you know, the counselors and the advisors all told me, you will never be able to do, to graduate from college. You won't be able to, all these jobs will not be attainable for you. You'll never be able, you know, once that, that part of your brain closes, there's like a time sensitive window. Oh my God, no. Like I, I got to college. I did amazing. Had like a 4.0 GPA, went to grad school. And one of the first classes I had to take was research statistics. And I got an A, like had, had zero problems with it because I had a context for it. Like there was this web of understanding around how the human mind works and how relationships work and family systems work. And then the research statistics allowed, allowed me to fill in a lot of that web. So I was excited about it and interested in it and it made sense for me. There was like a place for it in that web of understanding that wasn't there when I was in high school. Right, right. it couldn't have been that. That's just so interesting. What is your approach to screens at home? Ooh, okay, so <laughs> so we are, I will start off this conversation by saying that my husband has a master's degree in video game design and production and works for the biggest company in the world, very successfully and happily in the video game industry. So I think even just saying that kind of can set a lot of people's minds. <laughs> because, like, if your kid is playing video games, that doesn't mean they're going to amount to nothing and never leave your basement. Um, we do try to embrace like that unschooling, I mean, really freedom. Like I, I do try to give my kids a lot of freedom. It's a part of my parenting. It's a part of our homeschooling, that trust piece, mm -hmm. that experience piece. Um, we also have... Um, that minimalism component too, though, in which we are very intentional and conscious and mindful of what adds to our peace and joy and helps us to thrive and what doesn't. Um, and that's a collaborative conversation with each individual kid. So one app might help one kid to thrive and that same app might really make things harder for a different kid. Um, and so we just try to be really mindful of that. Just, I think of screens, each kid has an iPad and I think of screens like a part of the environment. It's a tool in the environment, just like a stick or a basketball or a shovel or whatever. Like we think of it as a tool. Um, and we very intentionally cultivate the, the tools in that toolbox that are on the screen. But just like with everything else, it really does come from a place of trust and respect and collaboration. And we don't fear technology. Um, because I see it, like I see the amazing things that my kids do and learn um, through that technology. And I mean, this, like this conversation is happening through technology. I do online coaching. So like I help families all over the world that happens through technology. Um, so we are definitely not anti-technology and people are often very surprised by that because we are very pro-nature. Um, our house is very like we're right on the sound and surrounded by trees and we spend loads and loads of time in forests and at oceans and like we're all about the nature. So if you look at like, my Instagram, it's like all less in nature. 
and a lot of people think that those two things are mutually exclusive, that you can't be like in harmony with nature and be okay with technology. And I try to push people on that a little bit. Like one does not mean that the two can coexist very harmoniously. Oh, I love that so much. And I think one of the most powerful words and the most powerful reframes in my life has just been the word and, right? Mm -hmm. Just replacing Mm -hmm. the word or with the word and. Uh, you know, we use screens and we're mindful and we're minimalist and we're in nature and et cetera. I think that's so Yes. I have not got to that place yet. And it's funny, I think people who listen to my podcast must think I'm a little, um, you know, Jekyll and Hyde about screens. (laughs) Honestly, I think my skin changes depending on who I'm talking to. I'm like, oh, yes, yes. Freedom with screens, but then I'll talk to someone else and I'll be like, oh, yes, yes, we must limit screens. Um, I get incredibly confused. I find the research really confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, I find the feedback really One thing you know? I have, I'm going to say really quickly, one thing that you really have to keep in mind with all of the research around screens and really all of the research around childhood is that it's all done with kids in school. Mm. And that is, you know, all of these pieces of research that I comb through, which I love to comb through. You have to keep that in mind. You know, if a kid is in school all day long where they are forced to sit there and pay attention and listen and don't move and and then they get home and they're home alone for a few hours until their parents get home for like the things that are happening and the needs that kids are having and the way things are getting expressed is just very different than with kids who are home slash living in the real world all day long. Um, so I try to keep that in mind, like, um, oh, what is it? Carol Black, who said, like, uh, studying children in school is like studying killer whales at SeaWorld. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really not a very accurate picture of what the natural child in their natural environment and habitat does and says and looks like and all of the dynamics at play. So I just try to keep that in mind as I'm looking through all of this research. For example, the research shows that kids will watch more, um, will spend more time on screens if they don't have any other unstructured alternatives. Um, so whereas like my kids, we have an acre of land, we, you know, we're, they have loads of opportunities around them at all times, and the screen is just one of them. Well, a lot of kids don't have all those other alternatives. Sure. I mean, they're in an apartment and they have a screen and they're there alone, and it's that or what, you know, do more homework. <laughs> so, so I think we have to keep that, all of those factors in mind too. And Peter Gray has a lot of research on kids with screens that I just find super helpful for parents. So if you want to like dive deeper into that, his free to learn book is a great place to go. Yeah. And I've read that book and I absolutely love it. And I, you know, it's interesting because I've said this before uh, several times that a lot of the people I respect have opposing opinions on it. You know, it's mm. really, if you read Peter Gray, he's just like 100% freedom and a tool and etc. And then you uh, listen to experts like Dr. Laura Markham or other peaceful parenting and respectful parenting experts who are saying, you know, that screens are to be fit and that it's not, you know, the poetry of today's day and age. And I just find that I do think it's very confusing. What I what I come back to at the end of the day is just like with everything else is that I think we all have uh, our own intuition and our own relationship with our child and our own specific unique context. And like you're saying, comparing the use of screens in a family that's homeschooling versus a family that isn't, comparing the use of screens for this age or for that age or this app or that app, this TV mm-hmm. show or that. I mean, they're all so different, right? I mean... There are so many things that my kids do on a screen that I think are just amazing and I would love them to do that for as much as they want. And other things that I feel like, ah, this is not how I most want us to spend our time. I don't feel that that's a positive thing. So I think it's, I think it's just, it's such a big word that includes so much, but at the end of the day, just like anything else, we have the power of critical thinking and discernment and certainly being motivated from a place of love, not fear. Right. I think Mm -hmm. putting technology as the devil or as, you know, evil or as dangerous is, how could that, you know, how could that serve anyone? How could that be true? Yes. As you're saying, look at all the incredible things that we do with technology. I think that's step one. Like we've got to shake out from underneath all of that anti-technology baggage that so many of us have that is compelling us to make fear-based decisions. Like, cause that's never a good place to make decisions from. So if we could just shake all of that loose, then we can have a conversation about 
how can we hold space for our values and for our children to thrive? Like, I mean, the bucket system helps us to do that because they're, they're spending time on the things that we together have decided that they, they have the intention of spending time on. And then once that's done, like, they can, I mean, they can do whatever they want. Like they're really, their time is their own. Um, and I don't have fears about that because it's like, okay, they've already engaged in their physical movement practice and they've already contributed to the running of the house and they've, you know, so then really their time is their own to figure out. I just, if it's a problem for your child or if it's a problem for your family, like in a very practical way, then you can address it. And I would invite you not to throw the baby out with the bathwater in the sense that like if your kid, if you say, oh, you got to turn that off, we have to leave and you throw a tantrum and then parents will say, oh, technology is the worst. It's like, well, <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's like, let's try to get really specific in your like observations and your detective work about what specifically is it that they're having a hard time with and how can you use that as a learning opportunity and help them build in some school, some tools and techniques to try and grow in that area or how can you alter the tool or material or environment um, based on their personality to help them better thrive with it like if a kid got really hungry and cranky and would forget to eat when they were reading books. I wouldn't, cause they just wouldn't stop reading, which was me. And I, <laughs> I wouldn't say like, books are the worst for you. Like no more books. We need no books in this environment. We just, we wouldn't do that. We would say like, okay, so how can we help you to hold space for other things too? Like I would love for you to move your body. I'd love to you just for you to spend some time outside. Um, that would be the conversation. And I would love people to be able to like, if you could swap out books and like an iPad, like in your mind, <laughs> how would you approach it? If, if there was a problem with it, like how would you try and support that challenge for your kid? I totally agree. Tell us more about the bucket system. The bucket system is something that sort of evolved over the years as I was moving into more child, like self-directed learning philosophy. And then other people kept asking me to show them how to do it and to talk about it. So eventually I turned it into a class, but it's basically where you sit down with your child and you have a seasonal collaboration session. And then in the class, I include all the specific questions to answer and the to ask and the different points to address. And you include yourself in it as well. Um, and then you um, have like a house bucket and a personal bucket for each person in the family. And that really provides the soft structure for our home days. So like one day a week, we have a hack school adventure, which is our homeschool adventure club. Um, and our adventures are, we try to follow them with two home days. And then we have a day of classes. So we, you know, we sort of have this balance that works well for us. But on the home days, those are bucket days. So those are the days that we all, myself included, move through the intentions that we have set for ourselves. Like I do yoga, I empty the dishwasher, I write um, for my book. I, you know, I, I have these things that I move through and my kids have things that they move through as well. And you asked me earlier, like how I homeschool while doing this work. And that's really how, because we all have things that we are working on and they're all valuable and they're all meaningful. And so like I might be writing and my other kid is writing on their laptop next to me um, or recording a new Minecraft video while another kid's helping me with my business accounting because they want to understand how that works better. Um, so really just like in this very integrated way, we all kind of help support each other work on the things that we are interested in working on and just have set an intention to work on. Yeah, I love that. And that's very similar to what happens on our home days. I mean, we don't actually have any days where we're home all day because we have a class every day, like different activities. But when we're home, big chunks of time in the morning, in the afternoon, after that, um, it, it, it's very similar, except that my youngest two are very young. So they're you know not going to be able to participate in that kind of flow but it's it's so interesting to see how like my eldest is already you know starting to help me make my videos or <laughs> you know working alongside me and he's of course wanting to get paid um so, you know <laughs> see if I can afford him but, <laughs> but I, I mean that's legit but I feel like you need to brush up on your skills a little first <laughs> you know yeah, if you want me to pay you the work's got to be the quality that I would pay for <laughs> Exactly. I think the bucket system really, it, it kind of closes the gap between, um, between where your kid's at and their, the executive functioning skills that they need to, to function independently throughout the day. Um, you know, cause they may have these intentions, but 
what I found is that I was sort of chasing after them all day, just nagging them about things. And like, that's not fun for me. That's not fun for them. Yeah. Um, we're not fans of like rewards and punishments. So like charts and things didn't really jive. You know, we had all these things we knew we didn't want to do. Um, and so this was sort of the answer for us in providing those executive function skills of that they don't have to try and remember everything and know what they need to do next. And it's very like tactile and sensory and you can see it. And when you do it, you like drop the clothespin and it makes this like noise and it's very like gratifying. And you know, you can sort of visually see what things you have done and what things you still have to work on. And so it just brings in this like sensory executive functioning piece that really helps the kids. Um, like I could get through my day without it because I have those executive function skills. My brain is more developed. It helps to close the gap for them between those two spaces. Oh my gosh, it sounds amazing. I can't wait to take the class. I'm very <laughs> it sounds like exactly what I need. Um, all right, so um, I want to get to your third pillar, which is simple living, right? Mm -hmm. All about simple living. So tell me about simple living. And I know that you include within that financial freedom and you've been speaking about that lately on your podcast and I want to hear more about it. So tell us what your, what your big vision is there. Yeah, like minimalism. I think the, I know that you are a fan of the simplicity parenting. And um, like the first half of that book resonated with me a lot um, because one of the like pillars that I do with every family in coaching is is simplifying, like simplifying your time, simplifying your calendar, simplifying your home, simplifying like when you simplify everything and finances are including in that, included in that, um, it, it makes everything so much better. It makes everybody able to function so much better. It makes everyone feel so much better. It makes, it frees up all of this space and time and energy for you to, to work on the things that actually are meaningful to you and grow in the ways that are actually meaningful to you. And if I am ever feeling overwhelmed or like I, I don't have the time or the energy to do the things that are that are really important to me, myself included, like that's where I go first. Like I go through and I simplify. We donate a bunch of stuff. I take things off the calendar. I, you know, I move through that simplification. It's really my go-to and it's incredibly helpful. And then with finances, I mean, relationships, all of it, like I bring that into and finances, I think might be surprising to a lot of people, but being intentional and conscious and efficient with the money that you have is so most definitely a part of minimalism. Um, we live debt free. We are moving toward financial freedom. Um, so it's just really simplifying things and being really conscious and intentional and smart about how and where and what in terms of setting up all of the different areas of your life. And money is definitely included in that. Yeah, a hundred percent. So is this something that you teach your kids in an active way or are they just learning by osmosis and by, you know, by role modeling, et cetera? <laughs> like are you, to tell me about those types of conversations that you're having with your kids around simplicity and minimalism and, and financial freedom and debt freedom. Yeah, they're a part of the conversations. So for example, we just got back from a trip to Hawaii, which is where my husband is from. And when we plan one of these trips, we sit down as a family at the table. Everybody gets a seat at the table, the kids included. And we say, okay, like here's the amount of money that we've set aside based on this and that and these numbers. And what do we, how do we want to allocate these funds? Like what activities do you guys want to do? Okay. This one costs this much. What activities, you know, would you like to do? Oh, that one sounds really fun. That one's more expensive. If we do that, we won't be able to do this one. You know, so it's not about like scarcity mindset versus, you know, abundance mindset. It, it's more about like, this is, this is the reality. There's money is finite. <laughs> like, I know there's like the, the mindset piece of like, yes, you know, money is, you just believe in it. It'll come to you. And I'm all about the like peace and love you do. Like I'm a total hippie. Um, but also like there is a certain number <laughs> that has been saved for this trip. And yeah. there is a number that this activity costs. So I think that how we really include that in our homeschooling is that we give the kids a seat at the table, even when it comes to bigger stuff. Like if the kid, one kid came to us and said they wanted a Hulu 
to subscribe to Hulu and we were like, okay, we can look into that. Like, this is what it costs a month. Like, so what other thing are we doing um, where we can pull that money from? Like, do you want to let go of so that we have the resources to, to do that? Um, so it's not about like, oh, I give the kids an allowance of X amount of money and they have to learn how to, no, like they get a legit seat at the table in these conversations that we have about what we're doing with our money. Um, like my husband, um, when he gets bonus money from his work, we put it all on the house and the kids know that like we're working toward paying off the house, you know, at which point it'll free up all this other money that we're having conversations about how we want to allocate once we don't have a mortgage payment anymore. And so really like the kids are part of that and, and they see me reading financial books and my husband and I having conversations about it. And we like to listen to podcasts on road trips and sometimes they're financial podcasts and we talk about it. And so we really approach money just like we do with everything else, like health and, you know, whatever stuff we're learning about or interested in or whatever things affect our lives. Like we live in a fixer upper. We bought like a terrible fixer upper that we've, that we've built back up to this home that we love. And just like that, the kids were a part of it. They were helping, they were helping us decide what things we wanted to do, how we wanted to allocate our time and our resources, what stuff mattered, what didn't, what, what could we let go and remove from the list. So just, we try to treat money like in a lot of families, it has a, a taboo, you know, we don't discuss money, but there's a difference between, um, not putting the stress of financial concerns on your children and excluding them from the natural role that money realistically plays in a family's life. Oh, a hundred percent. And I love the, just, uh, you know, I would say like charge free conversations around money mm. where there isn't this kind of baggage and charge and guilt or fear or, um, you know, extreme anxiety around it. I love the idea that, you know, just like we explain, you know, I don't know how, uh, how we make food or how, yes. uh, you know, how anything it is, right. Whatever, however, how anything works, you know, how the bus is, yes. whatever we explain how money works. And it's just another thing that we know. I mean, personally, I take that approach to all information. I mean, mm -hmm. how babies work, another taboo yep. that a lot of families have trouble like communicating. And I think, um, you know, Ron Liebler in his book, The Opposite of Spoiled, he talks a lot about money mindset for children and how a lot of children will ask their parents, you know, how much money do you have? How much money do you make? Or why can't we have this? And then parents have kind of shut down answers, you know, like, mm. you can't ask me that. Or when you're grown mm -hmm. up, I'll tell you, whatever. And he, I, he gave such great advice there, which was always about contextualizing. Um, and he was saying, like, he, it's not really about telling your child how much money you have. It's not the number in the bank or whatever. It's about explaining what that means or what you know, really breaking it down. They gave this great example of a guy whose kids asked him that. Um, and I don't know if he told them or didn't tell them the number. It doesn't matter. But he went and got a ton of single notes. Basically, he got his monthly <laughs> salary in single dollar bills. Oh okay, so whatever it was, got a $2,000 in yeah. single dollar bills. And they're sitting around the table and he breaks it up into pieces. And he says, this is what we spend on food this is what we spend on rent. Mm -hmm. This is what we spend on heat. And, and so they could visually see the amount of money that is yes. needed just to, to, just to sustain their life, just to stay yeah. alive and be okay. And then it, what, you know what I mean? So he's like, yeah, this is the amount of money I make, but you have to understand what we're doing with it and why we need it and how it works. And that's, in, in many ways, a much more interesting lesson than just how much I bring in, right? Yes, and giving them a seat at you know, that table yeah. so they can be a part of that conversation. Like, okay, so if you want to take $100 from here so we can see a movie every week, like, yeah. awesome, I like seeing movies too. Which pile are we going to take it from? Exactly. <laughs> and honestly, be open to their ideas. Like, I think one of the times my kids said like, well, the heat, like we can just wear sweatshirts. We're like, okay, what should we set the thermostat on? Let's see how much it affects the heat. Like, I'm totally open to those. Like to me, this is natural homeschooling. Like this is how they learn this stuff in real life. And I feel like that's really setting them up for success, even more than like memorizing some random historical detail that my kids are going to understand. Like, hey, once a year, mom calls and negotiates all the utility bills. Like that's a real life skill. Like they're going to know how to do that. Yeah. Oh, teach me. I, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I've got to do that. 
That's brilliant. But yeah, I think that's so true because so many of the skills that we think of as, oh, our kids just have to have this skill by the time they finish school, that will be uh, what's considered a good education, but they don't have the skill of how to sustain a healthy relationship, how to overcome conflict, how to manage their money, how to take care of their bodies, how to calm their minds down, how to have a good night's sleep. All of these just basic skills that all of us adults are struggling so hard to build, right? It's like, oh no, I can't do things. But wow, I know when the Great Depression was. Hey, (laughs) like, do you know what I mean? Like one minute, (laughs) let's just talk about priorities, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were in this book club through this like homeschool co-op and we were reading this book, the war that saved my life. And it was this amazing book. And my seven-year-old just every time I was like falling asleep and would try to put the bookmark in, he's like, no more. And it's all about, um, you know, the war with the Nazis and he's learning so much of it. And it's just, I had this funny moment where I remember like some extended family member saying something like, well, you have to teach them important things like about the Holocaust. And like, yes, of course. But all of those things can get fleshed out by like just living a really experienced, rich, collaborative um, lifestyle together. Like all of this stuff is really the stuff that's most valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you're saying, those things, they come up in culture, in movies, in Yep. In, in, and I personally did a whole two-year unit study on the Holocaust in high school. And <laughs> I did. And I sat through all the classes and everything. And it's extremely relevant to me because all four of my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Mm. But the truth is that everything that I heard firsthand from people, what I saw in museums, what I saw in movies, what I read in books is what has stayed with me. The, the dry facts from the classes that I took have not. So even, <laughs> even, even on topics like history, at the yep. end of the day, it has to be relevant and, and alive. Like it has to be mm-hmm. somehow, I think in order for us to just, just plain old remember it. Like literally, yep. I just don't remember those facts that I studied because I had to, but I remember all of the, of course, I remember all of the There other was stuff. no meaningful like, real life yeah. context, no like web for it to join onto. It was just this right. free floating blob, which doesn't get saved in the permanent memory. Like it stays yeah. in the temporary short term memory files just to regurgitate it for the test and then it's gone. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So uh, one last question around simple living, um, going back to the minimalism and the decluttering and being simplified. And I, I, you know, I, I live all of that stuff. I believe in it. I teach it. Uh, one of the things that comes up a lot of times for people in my community is, ah, but my kids, you know, want more toys at Christmas or more gifts for their birthday, or they want stuff. And I certainly experienced this with my own children. Um, and also this feeling of, um, you know, I don't want to be in a sense of, I don't want to deprive them or make them feel, you know, I don't think that kids necessarily in our culture, uh, you know, latch onto minimalism as naturally as we might like them to, because it's really glittery and exciting yeah. to, to get more stuff, right. To get more stuff. And I think it's hard, at least for my kids who are young, I think it's hard for them to really understand that, this impacts the earth or that it impacts our bottom line or Mm -hmm. that it makes stress because in our space gets messy. I mean, I think my kids do because we have a lot of conversations around that and we process it a lot. We, you know, but ultimately we want more stuff, you know? And (laughs) so how does that, how do you kind of teach your children that or or guide them? I think first and foremost, which I know we talked about when you came on my podcast talking about marriage, we can't control another human being. We can only control ourselves. So if minimalism is resonating with you, like then live it and like grow into it and lean into it and embody it. And the people who are connected with you are unavoidably affected by that. Like that does have a powerful influence over them. So with all of the like values that are important to me, I live them and then I try and respect my kids' autonomy um, and give them the freedom to find their own way. That said, we also do live in a shared space. So there are some practical things I do, like for example, having a space boundary. So like we have one bin that is for all of the dress up. And if you want to buy another dress up, like, awesome, we can put that on your birthday list. So we also have, I have a list on my phone with each of the kids' names on it. And when they say they want something, 
I say, great, let's add it to the list. And then by the time the next gift giving holiday comes around, I check in with them. Like, are there any things on this list that you don't really want anymore? And of course, like half the things they don't even have any interest in anymore. And then the space boundary. So like if you want to add another dress up thing, which thing do you want to remove from the dress up bin? And um, we're also a part of a local buy nothing group, which has been amazing because when the kids are done with something, we take a picture of it and we post it in the group. And then like a family comes and these little kids come and they get the toy and like they look all excited. And my kids get to see that and be a part of that, like passing on something that is not bringing them joy anymore. So it can bring some, have a new life and bring somebody else joy. So to actually have them be a really active part of that, I think has been really helpful. Rachel, thank you so very much just for being who you are, for giving me your time so generously and for everyone listening. And where is the best place for them to come and find you? Sageparenting.com. So that's my online hub. You can find my books there. You can find those classes there like the bucket system. And then that's the hub for all my coaching too. I do coaching for like homeschooling and parenting and minimalism and um, sleep and all kinds of fun things. And then I hang out a lot on Instagram too. So I'm at Sage Parenting on Instagram. So follow me over there, send me a message and the more friends, the better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and isn't Rachel's voice just dreamy, everyone? I love it. Oh, thank forever, you. So thank you so much. Yeah, your voice and then your giggle, it's all up. Oh, it's just awesome. <laughs> um, And uh, Rachel, welcome back from Hawaii. I can't wait to hear about that trip thank and another you. conversation. And just, yeah, thank you again for everything that you do and for giving us, giving us all your amazing wisdom. Oh, thank you so much, Avital. Thanks for listening to The Parenting Junkie Show. If this was helpful for you, I would be so appreciative if you would subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Subscribing to the show means you'll get the bonus episodes that I only deliver here. And when you rate and review the show, it helps other parents find it. I'll be shouting out some of my favorite reviews in upcoming episodes and would love to spotlight you. And remember, keep on loving parenting and parenting from love. Namaste.